Let's pray and ask God to now bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, there is absolutely no falsehood in your sacred word. It's true, all of it. Yet there is much falsehood in us, so that if we will hear your truth and embrace your truth and love your truth, we need your spirit of truth to give us ears to hear. So for that, we now make our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, whenever I uh, turn over the calendar from September to October, it starts getting cooler from our Tucson summers, and I like that. And I almost always begin thinking about the Reformation which took place in the Church of Christ 492 years ago this month. You know the story. We've talked about it many times in this church. It was then that a stocky Bible professor and monk nailed a set of 95 propositions to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, the door of the church served as the community bulletin board. And by posting those propositions, this professor was inviting anyone who wished to come and debate him on the religious points outlined in them. It was a fairly common practice of the day. The monk's name, of course, was Martin Luther. And little did he know on that chilly autumn afternoon that these 95 theses would spread like wildfire and would become the basis of what came to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Well, what was it that Luther was protesting that day in 1517? Well, I want to suggest to you that he was protesting the same thing the Apostle Paul was protesting some 1,500 years earlier. They both were protesting the preaching of a false gospel. There were many in Galatia who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from Paul himself. Yet many of these Christians, under the influence of false teachers, had gone back to their old way of life. They had gone back to to living under the old covenant, to living legalistically under the law, to substituting Jewish tradition for the truth of the gospel. False teachers had come in. They were telling these believers that they had to be circumcised, that they had to be obedient to the law of Moses if they were to be saved. And Paul denies this, and instead he tells them in this wonderful verse in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A wonderful verse. Yet some had gone back to their old way of life. And Paul was protesting. In the 16th century, Luther saw that the church of Rome, his church, the church in which he was a monk and a priest, had also been corrupted. The truth of the gospel of Christ had been buried over the years by corrupt church leaders, by by church tradition, by misinterpretation of the biblical text, by man exalting himself rather than God, and by a works righteousness instead of a righteousness based on faith alone. 
You see, like the Galatians, God's people were not free in Christ as they were meant to be. Rather, they were held in bondage by immoral church leaders who basically, they had a religious chokehold on these people. And the people were once again enslaved. And Luther, by posting his 95 Theses on the door of Castle Church, was protesting. Well, what about today? What are we protesting? Is there a need to protest? Well, I want to fly my colors. I think there is a need. I see some disturbing parallels between the distorted ideas of the gospel of Christ preached in the Galatian church and the medieval church and those being preached and taught in many of today's churches. Now, I could be wrong. And if I am, you need to call me on it. But it seems to me that the church as a whole has wandered away from the gospel of Christ and needs to be confronted once again with the ideas of the reformers which they recovered from Paul and from the rest of Scripture. You know, back in the 16th century, Martin Luther basically wanted to remove all the obstructions which the medieval church had interposed between Christ and the believer. He wanted to return to the first century principles of the Apostle Paul, the first century Christianity. And he and others, they took these first century principles and they translated them into slogans, which galvanized God's people to throw off their yoke of slavery and become once again free in Christ. Now, these slogans, they became known as the solas of the Reformation. Sola meaning only or alone. And there basically developed five of them. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. And soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. Well, what did these marvelous battle cries of the Reformation mean to the original Reformers? And how are they seen by the evangelical church today? Do these slogans today rally us to Christ? Do they, do they galvanize us as they once did Luther and Calvin and Beza and Melanchthon and other reformers? You know, over the next three weeks, as we look at these five great solas from the 16th century, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. What are we protesting today? And is there a need for a new protesting reformation in our beloved church? Well, what about Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone? And I'd like to begin by noting what Sola Scriptura did not mean to the Reformers. It didn't mean to them what I would call an individualistic approach to the interpretation of Scripture. You know, some people uh, allege that the Reformers, when they emphasize Scripture alone, we're really saying that an individual could interpret Scripture any way he wanted, regardless of what the church said. But that wasn't what these folks were talking about. 
You know, Luther believed that God does speak to us personally in Scripture, telling us that we're sinners and that we can be saved only by his grace. But that is far different from saying that we can interpret Scripture any way we want. You know, Luther said of individualistic approaches to the Bible, and I quote, he said, this would mean that each man would go to hell in his own way. He said, heretics all share a love of themselves, for they are wiser than the church and cannot err. But, he, but we who would be true Christians should be ready to be instructed by any child. You see, the reformers, they had no place in their view of sola scriptura for a subjective individualism that says, I, in my personal relationship with Jesus, can go to the Bible and come up with something which the church has never discovered. Something which the church has somehow missed for 2,000 years. They had no place for that view. Yet I would suggest that this subjective attitude is fairly common today. Many people claim that the Holy Spirit has spoken to them personally and has given them special insights which are not revealed in Scripture. Now, Christian bookstores are full of such books from authors who, who claim this special revelation. Yet the Reformers denied vehemently that the Holy Spirit speaks to people independently of or contrary to what is set forth in Scripture. The Holy Spirit never speaks to us in ways which go beyond Scripture. The Reformers contended against anyone's claim that personal spiritual experience can ever be a vehicle of revelation. Revelation comes from Scripture alone. Many years ago, John Calvin said something which could have been said yesterday. He said, and I quote, Fanaticism which discards the scripture under the pretense of resorting to immediate revelation is subversive of every principle of Christianity. For when they boast extravagantly of the spirit, the tendency is always to bury the word of God so they can make room for their own falsehoods. I suggest that's the same tendency today. There are many in today's church who claim immediate revelation from the Holy Spirit so they can ignore Scripture and make room for their own philosophies, their own psychologies. Dear ones, the Reformers would vehemently object, and so should we. So that's an important thing which, which the Reformers emphasized when they said sola scriptura. You just can't interpret Scripture any way you want. And I think uh, to guard against that tendency, they highlighted a number of things which were important in the definition of sola scriptura. So let's now turn to those. What sola scriptura did mean to them was that lay people should be included in the process of interpreting Scripture. This is an important point. You know, the laity or the reformers included the laity in the definition of the church. The medieval church didn't do that. You see, the medieval church was basically the clergy. And it was the clergy who told the people what the Bible really meant. 
You know, when Luther talked about the church deciding what the Bible said, he believed that this meant that all of us together deciding what the Bible said, that it wasn't simply the task of the clergy. It was a communal interpretation by the entire household of faith. Now, that's an important principle. And I'm, this is why Luther insisted that the Bible be translated into the vernacular, into the language of the people, and not just into Latin, which back in his day only the clergy could read. He wanted farmers and, and milkmaids and barbers to have their own Bible in their own language so they could read and study it and participate in this process. Sola Scriptura also meant to the Reformers that the Bible should be interpreted in light of tradition. Now, before you jump out of your chairs, uh, what did they mean by that? Well, I think there are, there are only three options in which to relate tradition to Scripture. The first option is that tradition creates Scripture. This is the medieval church's position. It's a Roman Catholic position. It's a Roman Catholic understanding. That Scripture says only what Rome says it says. And in that sense, they put tradition above Scripture. Basically, what they're doing is creating Scripture. Calvin's comment that this is like saying that the daughter gives birth to the mother. It's a terrible heresy. The second option is that tradition interprets Scripture. And I would suggest to you that this is really the Protestant position. This is the position of the Reformers. Tradition being the common reflection of the whole church, including the laity, in the past, in the present, and into the future on the meaning of the sacred text. Well, there's a third option, and that is that tradition is opposed to Scripture, which I think is where many so-called Christians come down today. It's tradition versus Scripture. If it's not new, then it doesn't really count for much. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed many, how many today are willing, to, are willing to jettison 2,000 years of biblical interpretation and church orthodoxy. Yet then they go on and invent their own new tradition. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Christ can and does bring people to himself in lots of ways. But I am concerned when I see the church's willingness today to ignore her long, rich heritage of orthodoxy in favor of many new methods of getting people into the fold simply primarily to increase her numbers. You know, many of these, of these new methods of church growth and Evangelism and worship are secular techniques. They might excite people, entertain them, get them all fired up to an emotional pitch, but in many cases they're not based on Scripture and they do not lead to change lives. I think related to this, and I, I thought about this, I'm not sure, but I... I see a growing cult of personality within the evangelical church today. Many TV evangelists and leaders of other ministries, they've become major Christian stars. Now, that's not bad in and of itself. 
In fact, in some cases, it's good. But what sometimes happens is that people become less concerned with what is being preached and taught and more concerned with who says it. Many evangelists and preachers and Christian authors play fast and loose with Scripture. And God's people should be protesting that. You know, I, I think we need to recapture the Reformation principle of the priesthood of all believers. Preachers and teachers must be publicly accountable to the Word of God. And it is the right and it is the duty of all believers to read and interpret Scripture and challenge their pastors where they appear to deny it, depart from it, add to it, or subtract from it. You know, Luther said that the average member of the medieval church said, I'm a layman, I'm not a theologian. I listen to what my priest says, him I believe. I want to exhort you this morning not to do that. Not to believe something just because I or some other preacher says it from this pulpit. You know where I'm going. I want you to, I encourage you to be like the Bereans. In Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now you shouldn't be belligerent. You don't have to purposely antagonize people. And you shouldn't really fuss with them over doctrines which which aren't essential to the gospel. But, dear ones, we are called to stand firm for the truth of Scripture. And we are to do that in a winsome and faithful way. And when it's being abused, we should protest. What Sola Scriptura also meant to the Reformers was that the scriptures were the sole rule of faith and practice. You know, back in the 16th century, philosophy was really big. And the reformers would have agreed that philosophy had a lot to say. Nevertheless, they said that where the scriptures speak, they have priority over philosophy and all other disciplines. Where the scriptures do address a problem, they have the priority to define that problem and to address its solution. See, this is where the reformers thought that the medieval church really went off the cliff. She was using secular pagan philosophy to answer questions which only the Bible had a right to answer. You know, the big hero of the medieval church was not Christ. It was Aristotle. The reformers never said that philosophy in and of itself was evil or was sinful. What was bad was where the Bible defined things like like the nature of God and the nature of man and how we relate to each other and how we relate to God. It was in those areas that the church was allowing secular philosophers to write the script. Well, I think we have a similar problem in the church today, but it's not with philosophy. I think it's with psychology. You know, 
Again, I could be wrong, but I think there's a troubling trend in that psychological categories are increasingly becoming the language of daily life in Christian circles. Words like self-esteem, felt needs, damaged emotions, dysfunctional family, codependency, victimization, suddenly seem to capture the most significant things about life and God and the Bible. We're no longer sinful, but codependent. Others have failed to meet our needs, or we have a wounded inner child. Secular answers often replace biblical ones under the guise of making the Bible more relevant to modern man. But this is not a question about relevancy. It's the outright subversion of the Christian message. Dear ones, when the Bible insists that human beings are sinners for which God judges them, it's not allowing the notion that people are simply victims of dysfunctional backgrounds or warped institutions and social structures or potty training. When the scriptures announce that the most important issue in a person's life is being reconciled with God. It's not making room for the conviction that the chief end in life is personal fulfillment and psychological wellness, even though the gospel may very well produce those kinds of effects. When the Bible proclaims that the only solution to the problem of guilt is the gospel of grace, and that the only answer to God's just, ju judgment is justification by faith alone, it's not willing to compromise with the view that guilt is merely a feeling conditioned by one's restrictive upbringing or by one's A-type personality. Now, I have a degree in psychology. <laughs> I'm not saying that psychology is all bad or that it can't play a role in such things as counseling. But when churches allow psychological categories to replace biblical categories, a false gospel is being preached, and all Christians should protest against it and call for a new reformation. Well, let me wrap this up. You know, one of the great impediments to sola scriptura in the 16th century was ignorance of biblical doctrine. And to the Reformers, ignorance of doctrine was ignorance of Scripture, which led to ignorance of God. You know, you and I live in a strange time. Most churches in the United States today are full. Budgets, at least until this most recent economic downturn, were bigger than ever. Christianity is a big business. There are TV programs, conferences, books, publishing houses, Christian paraphernalia, trinkets, T-shirts, coffee mugs. There's a lot going on in the Christian world today. Yet, today is a time of not very much theological depth. Many of God's people don't know the scriptures. If you look at the data, I would suggest it's not very encouraging not only do people not know the great doctrines of the faith, they don't even know the basic content of the Bible. George Barna, the Christian pollster, he tells us that a large percentage of people who go to church regularly can't even name the four Gospels. 
They can't give you the Ten Commandments. They don't know who wrote the Sermon on the Mount, and so on. George Gallup, a secular pollster, tells us that the Bible is highly regarded in America. There's one in virtually every home, but the level of Bible knowledge has never been less. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, the doctrine upon which Luther says the church either stands or falls, is under direct attack today from some who are inside the wire of the evangelical church. You know, Paul warned the elders in the church at Ephesus, and he warns us in Acts 20, verses 28 through 32. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Dear ones, I believe this is happening today in our beloved church. Men inside the walls are speaking twisted things to draw away God's people after them. How many here today are Protestants? You know, are we, are we protesting these things? Do we know the scriptures? Do we check them out to make sure that this and other pulpits are protected from fierce wolves who don't spare the flock? Do we admonish each other with tears whenever we see error? Are we alert? You know, the Apostle Paul wrote two letters of encouragement to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And he told him in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, From childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. See, Paul is making the point to this young pastor and to you and me that the scriptures will make you and others wise unto salvation. And so I want to encourage you this morning to really get to know the God-breathed book, the Bible. Spend lots of your time in this sole source of divine revelation. Go to the scriptures. Read them. Read them again and again and again. Study them. Only they are inspired by God, not philosophy, not psychology. Only they can give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Stand firm for the absolute authority of the Bible in all matters of thought, theology, and conduct. This alone rules in the church and in your life. This alone will bring about a new reformation in Christ's church. Lord, make it so in every heart this morning. Amen and amen.